recently, I have been thinking a lot about the, the issue of purpose. And part of that has to do with some of the stuff that I've been preparing for this seminar that I'll be out with. But the other aspect of it is it's just something that I think about quite frequently, the question or issue of purpose. It was about 22 years ago that Pastor Rick Warren from just up the road in Orange County released a book that became a huge success, one of the biggest Christian books ever to be sold, uh, The Purpose Driven Life. Now, there's a lot of Christians who have a lot of different opinions about that book or about Pastor Rick Warren. You may disagree with various things that he says or whatever it may be. Listen, I don't even agree with myself 99.9% .9 of the time. I disagree with myself frequently. So if there's things you disagree with him on, whatever, that's fine. But that book might even be on some of your shelves at home. Some of you have read that. I know more than a few people who came to Christ as a result of that book. That book, in the 22 years that it has been in print, has sold more than 50 million copies. It has been translated into 137 different languages. There's a reason for that. Something that he wrote in that book seemed to strike a chord with people. And I think it was that that he wrote, not that it was, you know, it's not the most amazingly written book, not that it's a poorly written book, it's just not like the most spectacularly written prose. He didn't identify anything unique or amazing. He wrote about things that people have talked about quite frequently throughout the church age. But what he wrote struck a chord with people because something in our culture has caused people to experience something that now, 22 years after it was first published, is even more acute than it was back in 2002. There are many people who've identified that in the last several years, people are wrestling with the issue of purpose and meaning. It's being called a crisis of meaning that we are facing. And that is because every single human being needs to, in a very deep way, answer some very important questions, what we might call existential questions. And every individual and every worldview, the worldview is the way that you kind of philosophically navigate through this life and through this world. Every worldview needs to answer these questions in a compelling sort of way or else you will lack meaning. You'll find that you lack an understanding of your value in this world or the value of your work if you can't answer some very simple questions. I call them the iPod M questions because they are identity, purpose, origin, destiny, and destiny and morality. Identity, who am I? Purpose, what on earth am I here for? Origin, where did I come from? Destiny, where do I go to when I die? And morality, what is right and wrong? Now, there are other questions that are important as well, questions of reality and truth and goodness and beauty, and those, those are important, but these five are crucial. And I think probably the most important one for human beings is the question of purpose. A number of different writers have written on this, whether they are from the theological perspective or the philosophical perspective or the psychological perspective. This issue of purpose is very important. And it was the question that Rick Warren asks repeatedly throughout the book, what on earth am I here for? Why am I here? And if you can't answer that question, in a compelling way, then people find themselves descending into a meaninglessness of existence. They just can't find their footing for why they are here. And we are seeing that in a huge way today. This is especially true, and it has been written about a lot in media over the last several years, among those in their early 20s or on into their 30s, of those who are 
in what we call Gen Y or Gen Z, but it is also being acutely felt by those who are baby boomers. Baby boomers who are now at this moment reaching retirement age at 10,000, greater than 10,000 people a day. And for many of those people, the culture that they grew up in and lived in indoctrinated them to think that their identity and their purpose was really found in their work and their career, and so they gave so much of their energy and attention to that, and now as they come to the point that they are preparing for retirement or they are in the process of retiring or have retired, they no longer have that, and they start to wonder, what on earth am I here for? They can find themselves depressed. They can find themselves really lacking in themselves and understanding what their value is, their worth is. We see that in our culture. So we see it with those who are in Gen Y, Gen Z, but we see it with those who are baby boomers. We're seeing it even more and more with those who are identified as Gen X. Those are people who are generally from about 50 to 65 years old now at this point. Why are they beginning to experience it? Well, because now the bulk of them are experiencing that some of you in the baby boomer generation experienced some time ago, they're experiencing for the first time the empty nest syndrome. And that generation much more than many other generations in recent time, has found their identity and their purpose in their children, or especially their children's sports career. And now when their kids leave home and go away, they start to feel this pit of emptiness and this wonder, what on earth am I here for? They didn't invest quite as much in their career or their work as their the baby boomer generation did, but their entire focus was their kids, and now as their kids begin to launch out and leave, they feel like, why am I here? Where is my meaning? Where is my purpose? Where is my value? And so these are the questions that people wrestle with. Now, here's the thing. You may be sitting here this morning and say, I've not thought about this at all. That's probably because you've been very, very busy. (laughs) You know, we don't think about these questions, identity, purpose, origin, destiny, morality, when we're really busy. When you're busy getting an education, when you're busy starting a career or building a business, when you're busy starting a family or building a life, you don't think about those things. But when the education that you worked so hard for and invested in does not produce a job that has meaning or you can't find a job to pay the $80,000 student loan debt, you start to ask, what on earth am I here for? Or when that relationship that you scoured the internet for and you swiped white and swiped left for doesn't materialize, and now you're in your 30s and you can't find someone to spend your life with, you start to ask the question, what on earth am I here for? Or maybe you did find the relationship, but at some point in the relationship, There was a diagnosis of some sort of mental health condition or the diagnosis of chronic pain or the diagnosis of a terminal disease, and now you're asking the question, what on earth am I here for? Along the way, as we hit these critical junction points, people experience what a couple generations ago was called a midlife crisis, today is called an existential crisis, and they start to ask the questions of identity, purpose, origin, destiny, and morality, but specifically the question of purpose. And in our culture, there are two major competing worldviews or stories that we tell ourselves. Sometimes they're referred to as meta-narratives. And the dominant counter-meta-narrative or story to the one that is found in the Bible in our culture today is a naturalistic worldview that doesn't really have very compelling answers to the questions of identity, purpose, origin, destiny, or morality. 
identity, you're just the highest form of animal. And someday something will evolve that's greater than you and overcome your species. There's people who are working towards that today. It's called transhumanism. Purpose, well, really just to pass your genetic material on to the next level, maybe to continue the species. Origin, random chance and mutation over billions and billions of years. Destiny, when you die, you just be absorbed back into the ground. Morality, whatever you think is right or wrong, for you, it's your truth. But there's no objective standard. And we wonder why there is in our culture today a, a question of what is my inherent value and worth and is there any meaning to all of this? There's a lot of people wrestling with this. And I want to suggest to you that that cultural worldview that has been the thing that has been infused into the hearts and minds of every single person in this room for the better part of the last 75 to 100 years in the Western world is a worldview that is pathological. It leads to sickness. We're seeing it. It leads to mental, emotional sickness, but also physical unhealth. And we see it constantly. And so this question of purpose is a very important one that people wrestle with. What on earth am I here for? I've been thinking a lot about this recently, and not because I'm in the midst of a midlife or existential crisis, but this is actually something I think about constantly. I wrestle with these things quite a bit because I think they're very important questions. And even though maybe you do not wrestle with them in the same way that I do, I want to encourage you to think about it this morning. What on earth am I here for? What is your purpose? Now, I think there's two ways we can answer that. One is the very specific purpose that is individual to every single one of you here in this room. And that is often manifested when people as Christians begin to ask the question, what is God's will for my life? That's one of the most frequent questions that younger Christians wrestle with, especially those who are Christians through high school and on into college. Maybe you, at that stage of life, that was you. You asked the question, what is God's will for my life? That question, it at least tells us that there is this desire for each of us to know our own specific individual purpose. So there's one way to answer the question, what is the purpose of life in the individual way, but then there's the general. What's the general purpose for which you and I exist? And I believe that those questions can be answered. There is a specific answer because, point number one, if you're taking notes this morning, God created me for a specific and individual purpose. That is what we learn when we come to the Bible. And I think there's a certain part, even in the person who doesn't believe in God or believe in the Bible, who recognizes that there is a desire to have a purpose. They want, they, they want there to be a reason why they're here beyond just passing your genetic material on or furthering the human race. But the scriptures reveal God created me for a specific and individual purpose. That, that is what really... Rick Warren was arguing for in his best-selling book, The Purpose Driven Life, say whatever you will about that book. Many people latched onto it because they realized they want, they want there to be a specific and individual purpose. Theologians and philosophers for centuries, well before Rick Warren ever came on the scene, they've been talking about this. It is the issue of telos, 
Telos is the Greek word for ends or purpose or what is the reason for something's existence. Everything that is in existence has some sort of a purpose. And we kind of understand this. This cup here has a very clear purpose for which it was made. Now, I can use it for other things. It's somewhat hard. I could use it to pound a nail in, but it's not going to be very effective and I'll probably break it. And that's the amazing thing about purpose, telos. Things were created for an intended purpose, and if they're not used for their intended purpose, they will be broken. And if we see a lot of broken people in our culture, that might tell us that the purpose we've been telling people they've been made for is not right. And we see a lot of broken people, mentally, emotionally, physically. God created me for a specific and individual purpose. And I think that we discover the specific and individual purpose that is specifically for you as you engage in doing the general purpose for which you were made that is revealed to us by God in the scriptures. Now, Rick Warren addresses the general purpose for which we were made in his book, and he sums it up in five different things having to do with worship and mission and fellowship and ministry and these sorts of things. And all of those things are really good, and I think that there's a lot of truth to them. In fact, he supports these things with Scripture. But I want to focus this morning more on something a little bit more fundamental about what our purpose is. Answering that question, what on earth am I here for? Rick Warren, on page 22 of his book, he says this, you cannot arrive at life's purpose by starting with a focus on yourself. Well, that's different than what our culture says. See, our culture says it's all about you, and you've got to begin with you. You've got to figure out you. You've got to find yourself. And then as you find yourself, you find your purpose. Maybe not. You cannot arrive at life's purpose by starting with a focus on yourself. You must begin with God, your creator. You exist only because God wills that you exist. You are made by God and for God. Until you understand that, life will never make sense. It is only in God that we discover our origin, our identity, our meaning, our purpose, our significance, our destiny. Every other path leads to a dead end. Why did that book sell so much? Because something about that accords with reality as we understand it. Point number two, God desires that I would discover and fulfill his purpose. And though I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, in discovering and fulfilling his purpose, you fulfill your purpose. But God desires that I would discover and fulfill his purpose. This is that issue of God's will. What is God's will for me? And I think, as I've been contemplating this for a while, that we can discover something of the essential nature of God's general purpose for us by looking to a very interesting passage of Scripture in the Gospel of John. So if you would take out your Bibles this morning, if you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand and one of our ushers will bring you one. The Gospels are in the last third of the Bible. They begin with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. John chapter 17, if you would turn there this morning. As you're turning there, a little bit of context, some background as to why this passage of Scripture is important. 
In John chapter 17, we have a prayer of Jesus. Now, some of you may have heard of the Lord's Prayer before. That's the one that begins, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. How many of you have heard that one before? Lift up your hand. Okay, some of you maybe prayed that before. Maybe you were a part of a church where that was prayed regularly. Maybe you were told to pray it many times because you did some things you had to confess. That's called the Lord's Prayer. It's found in Matthew chapter 6 and Luke chapter 11. And I think it would more properly be called the Disciples' Prayer because Jesus is telling his followers, his disciples, how they should pray. And he says, when you pray, this is how you pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He's given them a, a model for prayer. And I think the prayer that we find in John chapter 17 would probably better be called the Lord's Prayer because this is actually a prayer that Jesus prayed. And it's fascinating because this prayer that Jesus prayed was prayed the night before he went to the cross. And in this prayer, Jesus, the Son, who is God in the flesh, is praying to God the Father, which is a challenge for people, but it brings us into this whole discussion of the triune nature of God, the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, which I'm not going to go into today. It would take me a lot longer to talk about that and give like a good theological treatise on the Trinity. In fact, the church took about 400 years to hash that out in the first 400 years of Christianity. So I can't get into that in 21 minutes. But Jesus, the son, and son just tells us about his nature because the son of an individual has the same nature as the individual from which he comes. And Jesus is the one who has the nature of God in human flesh. He is praying to the father here in this passage and he's praying for you. He's praying for his disciples. And not just the disciples that were there, Peter, James, John, Bartholomew, Thomas, and so forth. He's praying also for you because in this very passage, he says, I do not only pray for these who are here, but for those who will hear their word and believe later. You, if you're a follower of Jesus. So he prays for you. So here in this passage, God the Son, Jesus, God incarnate, is praying for us. He's going to God on our behalf And he comes to us on behalf of God as God. He's doing the work of a priest. And he's going to actually perform the work of a priest the following day after this when he offers a sacrifice of himself for us. It's an amazing thing that's going on in this passage. But here, God incarnate, the creator of all things seen and unseen, he's praying for you. So his will is revealed in this passage for you. And in his will is his purpose for you. And I believe that there's at least three things that we can learn about our general purpose here in this world, here in this passage where Jesus prays for us, his people. We see it beginning here in verse one. And the first thing we discover is this, point number three, if you're taking notes, I was created to know God or by God to know him experientially in relationship. That's one of the first things we discover here in this passage. I was, dis- I was created by God to know him experientially in relationship. How do I know that? Look at John 17, verse 1. Jesus spoke these words, and he lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, so that your son may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him And this is eternal life. Note this, verse 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 
I was created by God to know him experientially in relationship. We discover that here in this passage. Now, again, there's a number of other things going on in this passage. This whole strange thing of the nature of God here in this passage where Jesus, God on earth, is praying to God the Father in heaven. The triune nature of God is that there is one God who exists in three persons, but he's still one united being, one God. Like I said, it took 400 years of church history and the first 400 years of Christianity for the church to fully comprehend and understand this and solidify it as doctrine. But that's, that's here in this passage. And it's even seen in what we read there in verse 2 where it says, you, I'm sorry, at the end of verse 1, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son that your Son may also glorify you. There is this glorification of Father and Son from Son to Father, from Father to Son, which speaks to this reality that they have the same nature. They are co-equal, co-eternal, co-substantial, but distinct persons who glorify one another. We see in this passage that Jesus has authority. You have given him authority, verse 2, which is the Greek word exousia, which is power. He has the power and the jurisdictional authority to give something so very important that every single one of us deeply desire. Eternal life. It's one of the most fundamental drives that every being has. The desire and drive to live. It's an amazing thing. As a pastor, I've spent quite a bit of time over the years with people who are approaching death in the last hours sometimes. It's amazing how much this body holds on to life. There's a drive to live. But there's a drive to not just live here in this life, but to live on and on and on. It's a deep desire that we all share. And that desire is only ultimately satisfied in God. Because I'm not convinced that you and I are by nature immortal. I don't believe that we have immortal souls. Only one is immortal, the scriptures say. God alone is immortal. But Jesus has brought to light life and immortality through the gospel. And he has the authority to grant or give eternal life to whoever he may choose. That's what's revealed in this passage. But then he explains to us what this eternal life is. This eternal life is to know God, to know Jesus Christ. And that word know, it it speaks of an experiential, relational life. You and I were created to have an experiential relationship with God forever and ever that is unbroken by time. That's one of the purposes for which you were made. I was created by God to know him experientially in relationship. Now the problem is, as we discover in the opening pages of the Bible, we are separated from God. We're divided from him because of sin. Genesis chapter 3 makes this very, very clear. Now, prior to Genesis chapter 3, the creation story in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, it tells us that at the very beginning, God made it so that you and I, humans, were able to live in connection with God. There was a relationship with God. They walked with God in the garden in the cool of the day. What exactly that means, people have theorized about that poetic language for a long time. Whatever it means, at the very least, it means that there was a relationship between God and his creation, most specifically with humanity at the beginning. But because of rebellion and sin in Genesis chapter 3, that relationship was separated. 
but God. Jesus came to this world, which we celebrated at Christmas, to do what? He came to redeem us from sin and death, to reconcile us back to relationship with God, and to ultimately restore all things back to the way that they were before the fall. That's what Jesus is doing in this world. He redeems, he reconciles, he restores. He restores us back to our purpose. And part of that purpose is to be in relationship with God. This is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Secondly, the next thing for which we are made is point number four on your outline. I was created by God to glorify him forever. Again, back to John chapter 17. We see this word come up quite a bit here in this passage. In fact, it's used eight times, both in the verb and noun form in the passage, the word glorify. See if you can see it as I read through here. John 17, verse 1. Jesus spoke these words and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may also glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you, there it is a third time, on earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. What was Jesus' purpose in coming? Now, it's revealed in a number of different places in the scriptures. In one place in the gospel, he says, I have come to seek and to save that which is lost. In another place, he says, I have come to give my life a ransom for many. In another place, he says, I have come that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. And here in this passage, he says, I have finished the work that you purposed me to do. And what was that work? He says, I've glorified you here on earth. And now he calls us to share in this work. Verse 5, I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. The ever-existent one, the one who was and is and is to come, Jesus, he was glorious and glorified before creation. He glorified the Father here on earth 2,000 years ago. And he says, I'm about to return to your presence outside of this cosmos in the presence of Almighty God and what we might call heaven. He says, I will glory you again in that place. But he desires that you and I would glorify the Father in and through him as well. Skip on down to verse 9, John 17. I pray for them, for my disciples. I do not pray for the world, but for those who you have given me, for they are yours and all are mine, or all mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. One of Jesus' purposes in coming to this world was to glorify the Father on earth, and he desires that we would share with him in that purpose. I was created to glorify God. Now, some of you may have read many years ago the Westminster Shorter Catechism of Faith. It was written several hundred years ago, and the Westminster Catechism is a, a question and answer sort of thing that helps you to understand what you believe. And the first question is, what is the chief end of man? And the Westminster Confession says the chief end of man is to glorify God. God and enjoy him forever. So Christians have understood this for a long time. I was created that I might be in relationship, experiential relationship with God. I was created to glorify God. In fact, all of God's creation was made to bring praise, honor, and glory to God. In the same way that a masterpiece of art brings honor to the master who made the masterpiece. 
The great creator, the great engineer, the great artist, God, he created everything seen and even the things that we cannot see. He created all those things and they bring glory to him. They glorify his existence. The existence of that painting on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, it, it proves that there is a painter who painted it. Its existence declares the existence of the artist and the existence of all things seen and unseen. They declare the existence of the artist, the architect, the engineer. And they glorify his existence. They glorify his intellect. They glorify his, uh, his power and resources. The psalmist said it 3,000 years ago like this. The heavens declare the glory of God and the earth shows forth his handiwork. Day unto day, they utter speech. There's not a time when the creation is not praising and honoring and glorifying all that God has made. All of creation does. The sun, the moon, the stars, the orbits, the seas, the rivers, the oceans, the water cycle, the hills, the mountains, all the animals, all of these things cry out that there is a God that made these things. All of God's creation praises and glorifies him except for one part of his creation. You and me. We rebelled. We were created to glorify God. That was our purpose and we rebelled. We turned away from God. Although we knew God, we did not glorify him as God, nor were we thankful, but we became futile and our thoughts and our foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, we became as fools and we changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible human beings or birds, or four-footed animals, or creeping things. Therefore, God has given them over to uncleanness and the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. We exchanged the truth of God for the lie. And we worshiped and served the creature rather than the cre creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That's Paul in Romans chapter 1. What is he saying? He's identifying something 2,000 years ago which is continuing today. The intelligentsia of our culture for the last 165 years has said what? There is no God. All of this is the product of random chance and mutation over billions and billions of years, and it's so awesome and amazing that we should honor and glorify and praise the creation. What's that called? Well, the Bible would call that idolatry. And we see it all around us. But in spite of our rebellion, we were created by God to glorify him forever. That is the purpose for which we were made to live in experiential relationship with God, to glorify him as God forever. And, and that's been devastated, and we've, we've rejected that. We've turned away from it. But Jesus came to fix that. He came to redeem, to reconcile, and to restore. The final thing we learn in Jesus' prayer here in John 17 about our purpose for which we were made is this. Point number five. I was created by God to live in unity of purpose, communion, and oneness with him. To live in oneness with God. Created to have experiential relationship with God. Created to glorify God. Created to live in oneness, communion of relationship with God. Look at John 17, verse 11. Now I am no longer in the world, Jesus says. He's preparing to depart from this world. But these, my disciples, are in the world. And I come to you, Father. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given to me that they may be one 
as we are one. The awesome reality of the triune nature of God. God is one, but he is one in three persons, distinct persons who are co-equal and co-substantial and co-glorious. They are united together as one. There is a oneness in God, but there is a distinctness of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, I have come that they might be joined back together and experience oneness with God. Look at verse 20. I do not pray for these alone, the disciples that were in his presence, Peter, James, John, Bartholomew, Thomas, and so forth, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given to them, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may be, may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. On the night that Jesus would be betrayed by one of his disciples, Judas, the night that he would be turned over to the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, to appear before the chief priest to be condemned to die and then taken to the Roman governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate, and condemned to die. And the night before he would be crucified on the cross, Jesus prayed for you that you and I would experience oneness with God through him. That we would experience life in connection with God through Jesus. Maybe you've heard those words before. We talk about them a lot here. Garrett mentioned them on the announcements this morning. They're on the front of your bulletin. They're on like all our printed material. One of our websites that leads to our church website is Life in Connection. Our whole focus is life in connection. With what? With God, with one another, and with the world through Jesus. It is a restored connection whereby Jesus redeems and reconciles us back to God and one another in Christ Jesus by his death on the cross. He brings us back to the place where we fulfill his purpose. That's what we're all about here at Cross Connection Church. And, and maybe you've heard this before because I talk about this all the time, especially every year in the first few weeks of the year. But it's important for us to hear again these important truths. Why? Because I see it as a part of my call as a pastor to lead you into the discovery of this purpose. That you were created to be connected to God. And your heart will not rest until it rests in him. Augustine said that 1,600 years ago. Our culture is falling apart, and I am rather pessimistic on Western culture. I'm long on Jesus and long on his kingdom and short on Western culture because it is falling apart. Why? Because we have indoctrinated our culture for the last nearly two centuries with a pathological worldview that is destroying our culture. And unless it is refocused on the good news of the purpose that we find in Christ, there is no hope for Western culture. I know it sounds kind of bleak. We still have an optimistic vision of the future here, but it's on the kingdom of God. But my, my aim is that you would discover this purpose and that we would learn together 
how to experience this reality of being connected to God and one another and, and sharing that with the world through Jesus Christ. And there's many different ways that we discover in the scriptures how we connect with God. We connect with God when we gather together as the people of God and worship him together in song. It may seem like a trivial or, trivial or dumb thing, but God uses that to unite us together as one. There's been studies that show that in corporate singing, your heartbeat begins to tune with the heartbeats of others around you. What is that? There's something about connecting with God and with one another corporately and singing, even if you have a bad voice. That's why scriptures say make a joyful noise. And most of you make a joyful noise. I do too. It's only like Anthony and Shayla that make good noise. But we unite together with God. We join together in fellowship with him through worship, through his word, through serving with one another, through praying together, praying for one another, through all kinds of different ways. We experience this connection with God and with one another. And what does it do? It completes us because it fulfills the purpose for which we are made. That's what God wants you to enjoy in Christ Jesus. That's what Jesus came to accomplish 2,000 years ago through his broken body and his shed blood, which for many centuries the church has called communion, which we're going to partake together this morning. We always begin the year partaking together with communion. We do it every seventh Sunday here at Cross Connection Church. And so I'm going to invite Anthony and the worship team back up here. And as we sing to the Lord this worship song, our ushers are going to be in the aisles to distribute the bread and the cup. If you did not receive them when they came in, they just look like this. They'll give them to you then. But we're going to partake together to remember what Jesus accomplished through his broken body and his shed blood. He made it possible through his sacrifice that you and I could be redeemed, reconciled back to God, back to fellowship with one another, which we'll talk about more next week, and that ultimately we could experience the restoration that Jesus has come to and will come to future accomplish. This is the good news that we have to share with the world, a world that is in desperate need for finding its ultimate purpose. God, we live in a culture that is sick because it has been told by liars a devilish false truth, an anti-truth, that purpose is found in some trivial, insubstantial thing in this world when in reality our ultimate purpose is only found in you. And God, I pray that you'd help us who are here in this room this morning to know this, to know it not just intellectually, but to know it experientially and to know it in such a way that we begin to live it, we experience it, and we express it to other people because there are hundreds of thousands, nearly a million people within 10 miles of this building who are in desperate need of this truth. So God, would you do a work in us in 2024 where we more fully discover the purpose that you have created for us generally, but then specifically as we begin to glorify you, as we begin to connect with you through worship and through serving and through prayer and through all these different practices, that in that we would discover the very individual and specific thing that you created us uniquely for, for such a time as this. God, do a work in us, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name and all those that agreed said, amen. As we sing. If you did not receive these, the ushers will bring them to you and hold on to them. We'll partake together in just a moment. A scripture that maybe many of you know well, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus came to this world to seek and to save that which is lost.
to give his life a ransom for many. On the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake together. In the same manner, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's partake together. Lord, I'm not even sure that we fully comprehend the, the goodness that is revealed in what you did for us on Calvary 2,000 years ago. Lord, we, we can only begin to scratch the surface of your love in seeing it demonstrated through the cross. Lord, you desire that all people would come to the knowledge of the truth, that all people would come to the place of finding the fullness of their purpose in you. The purpose for which you created, that we would be in united relationship with you, that we would glorify you to no longer be in opposition and rebellion, but just as all the other things of your creation, that we would magnify your awesomeness in creation. The things that we see when we look out into the cosmos through a telescope or we look down into the cellular level through a microscope or below that in subatomic level, Lord, we see the awesomeness of your existence. I pray, God, that we would glorify you in the same way that those things glorify you. And Lord, that as we experience that relationship that you created us for, and as we express it, that you would draw other people into the knowledge of that purpose as well. God, do a work in us, we pray. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that you have been good to us.